are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode 31, Considerations on Finality. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. My conversation with Jack Ryder of the Gray Robinson Law Firm in Miami is coming up next. Jack Ryder, welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And, you know, you and I are sort of in a similar position in that we're appellate lawyers at larger firms, uh, you know, in an appellate department. We have a number of partners in our firm that we are an appellate resource for. And one of the things I've noticed is the the most common question I get from my partners is, is this a final order? Seems to be the the most commonly asked question. Is that true for you too? Yeah, you know, actually, Dwayne, that is true. It's, believe it or not, one of the things that happens virtually uh, once every two or three weeks, someone either in my office or even lawyers I know in the community will approach me and they'll present me with an order and they'll ask me whether or not it's final and how do you know if it's final? And it's actually a very uh, vexing question because it can be very difficult to, uh, to discern sometimes from looking at a document, whether or not uh, the language does in fact present sufficient indicia of finality for purposes of review. And uh, of course, as you well know, the concept of finality is perhaps one of the most significant and critical components of any appellate practice and trial practice, since an order has to be final in order to be executable, typically. Um, certainly with respect to a final order on a money judgment, has to be final to be executable, and absent certain exceptions, an order must be final in order to be appealable. So it is indeed a question I get asked quite regularly. Sure. And of course, you know, before we get into that, we'll acknowledge that there are other avenues, right? There are certain types of non-final orders that are appealable. Those are very specifically set out in the rules. And there's potential for discretionary review of, of orders, uh, I guess just about any order, although just because you can doesn't mean you should. But for for most uh, in most cases, uh, the question of appealability really turns on finality. That's right. That's right. And of course, I certainly agree with you that we have specific categories of appealable non-final orders under Rule Nine Point One Three Zero, and of course, we have those specific orders that can be reviewed in certain circumstances through original writ proceedings. But for purposes of this discussion, as you mentioned. I'm looking to the concept of what is finality, because the idea that an order has to be final, and of course, the concept of finality is is really imbued within our appellate system, because as we all know, courts really don't want piecemeal review. They want to have the opportunity to review a matter when it's complete. Uh, and I believe that that's why the concept of finality can be so important, and at the same time can be so confusing at times. Yeah, it can be confusing because it, it sounds like a, a simple question, right? Is something final, but there, there are a lot of aspects to it. And, you know, when when people ask me this question, I always say something like, and, and I say it half tongue in cheek, right? Well, has the judicial labor ended? You know, as if this is an easy question to answer. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's funny. It's funny. It, 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 
It's funny you say that because the definition really does sound straightforward. I was looking, for example, the case, the Supreme Court decision of SLT Warehouse Company versus Webb, which gets cited pretty regularly for that that very, what appears to be that straightforward question. Does the order constitute an end to the judicial labor with nothing further remaining to be done? It does sound straightforward. And when somebody looks at an order, it may in fact appear that there's nothing left to be done. But as you and I both know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's final when there might be certain nuances of that specific order that while on their face appear to have that indicia of finality may in fact leave quite a bit to be uh, finished still. Definitely. Definitely. So, so what are the kind of things that you look for when you're trying to make this analysis? Sure. So one thing is clear and that is that in order to be a final order, the specific ruling by the court has to be reduced to writing And there's actually a rule, as I'm sure you're well aware, but for our listeners, there's a rule right on point that talks about the concept of rendition. And it talks about finality. And it's it's in the definitions. I I believe it's rule 9.020, where it talks about rendition of an order. And we, of course, use the term rendition in order to, as a, I, I guess, as a euphemism for finality, the concept of rendition. And under the definition section, um, 9.020H, says that an order is rendered when a signed written order is filed with the clerk of the lower tribunal. So one of the things that I tell attorneys who ask me this question is, do you have a written order? And I can't imagine, it's, it's really surprising to me how often I will be approached by an attorney who has a, the, the court, the trial court judge has, has rendered, not rendered, but has announced, I should say, a specific ruling, but has not yet reduced it to writing. And that in and of itself can create frustration because a verbal order is binding in the sense that if, if a judge issues a verbal order, we are obligated to certainly comply with it, but we can't necessarily do anything about it until that verbal ruling is reduced to writing. And so going back to the issue of finality, is it in writing, number one? Number two, does it in fact uh, adjudicate or resolve any and all issues that are outstanding with respect to uh, the judicial labor that needs to be performed. Certainly it's easy when you're dealing with a final judgment following a verdict, but even that can create different areas of confusion, which we can talk about because of the different tolling motions that preclude or prevent or, or toll rendition of an order. Sure. And I would say that sometimes on its face, it looks like an order may not end the judicial labor because it will reserve jurisdiction for things like fees and costs. But but that's that's different, right? That, those are collateral issues that don't necessarily affect finality. So leading to more confusion. That is different. And it's one of the things that I think is probably one of the most uh, greatest pitfalls, if you will, in appellate practice, particularly for someone who may not realize that the reservation of jurisdiction first of all, is not even a requirement when it comes to matters that are collateral. So to the extent there's a final order that reserves jurisdiction to adjudicate fees, technically speaking, the final order does not need to reserve jurisdiction in order to address something that is collateral. Then, of course, there could be areas of confusion because what if there is no specific language about reservation but yet there is a specific issue that's left over within the order or the final judgment that purports to be final that the court still has indicated that it intends to undertake. 
So for example, if, and I'm, this is another one of, of the areas that I think yields a significant amount of confusion, and that is an order that grants a motion for summary judgment, but doesn't actually enter the summary final judgment. And one of the things that I have seen many times is an order that grants a motion for summary judgment or an or, order that grants a motion to dismiss. Somebody takes a notice, uh, files an appeal, files a notice of appeal. The appeal begins and even runs its course. And at some point down the line, the appellate court realizes that this was merely an order granting a motion for summary judgment and did not actually enter a final judgment. And will res- in my experience, the court has often relinquished jurisdiction for the entry of a final judgment as opposed to dismissing the appeal. But I've seen that happen many times. Yeah, I wanted to go back and comment on a couple of those things. Um, I, I agree with you that uh, final judgments don't have to reserve jurisdiction for fees because of the collateral nature. But I would just comment, I'm sure you'd agree, that it's very hard to convince a trial lawyer of that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to put in there that the court's reserving jurisdiction on fees, right? Because they, they're going to really want that in there. <laughs> Agreed. ...of appeal that we know is premature... Uh, but that's addressed in the rules too, uh, and then trying to get the actual final judgment just because everybody gets nervous when the topic is, hey, you know, we might blow an appellate deadline because that's like instant malpractice, right? So you see a lot of premature appeals of those orders, even though maybe there's somebody behind the notice of appeal that knows better, but they just uh, are overruled or <laughs> trying to be real careful or whatever. That's absolutely. And and certainly always better to be safe than sorry, right? I mean, if I'm in doubt, and I definitely have had circumstances where I have had some doubts, particularly, which I think we can get into in a little bit, the idea of those partial final judgments, the ones that have nuances where components of the judgment may be final and appealable while other components of it are not. And in some instances, does that mean one has an immediately reviewable order? Is it better to do it then? Is it something that can wait till later? And I, ironically, I see this come up a lot with the non-final orders, which I know is not really what we're talking about today. But so many times we run into these issues where you've got a non-final order. It might be reviewable under the rule, but it might also be reviewable as most non-final orders are at the end of the case. And that creates a whole other dynamic. But I I thought it would be important, Dwayne, when we talk about finality, one of the things, and this goes back to something I mentioned before, when I mentioned the idea of pitfalls, the things that I see that create a significant amount of confusion are those motions that toll rendition. And what happens when there's a motion that it's unclear if it's tolling rendition and what is the right thing to do? Once again, I have seen instances more than once where the timing is a little bit off or maybe a motion. And, and let me let me back up a minute because when we talk about the tolling of rendition, and I mentioned before, as we know, the, the rule talks about rendition and uses that kind of as a litmus test for when an order is final. And we use the term rendered as a euphemism for finality. And then under the rule, there are those specifically delineated motions that toll rendition provided they are timely filed the motions for new trial, the motion for rehearing, motions to alter or amend. So as I have have had, and this comes up many times, what do you do when you've got that circumstance where the verdict is returned and there's a motion for new trial that's pending? And of course, we used to have to struggle with the idea of, well, 
at what point do we feel confident that we, in fact, have told rendition of the order for purposes of making sure that the appellate deadline hasn't started to run and to make sure that the judgment is not yet executable? And and you may recall um, there used to be that nuance in the rule a few years ago, which was disastrous, where the rule required that the the timely filed motion had to be served but not necessarily filed. And I recall having this come up more than once where uh, a litigant filed a motion for new trial or rehearing, but didn't serve it timely and didn't realize at that time that they had not told rendition and the time for filing notice of appeal had started to run. I actually encountered that circumstance a few years ago before the rules really changed in order to accommodate electronic filing. So thankfully, that's no longer a pitfall that's out there. Yes, yes, that was that was a dangerous trap, and uh, one of the kind of fixed by electronic filing for the most part, and the rule changes that go with it. But yeah, that's that that was scary. It was, and here's the other scary thing that, and I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but I've encountered this a few times. I have seen circumstances where a party moves for an extension of time to file their post-trial motion. And I've seen instances where trial courts have actually granted motions for extension of time to file post-trial motions that would otherwise toll rendition. The problem is, is that post-trial tolling motions cannot be extended, and the deadlines for filing those are one of the few things in the rules that cannot be extended by a court order. I had a a law firm try to hire me, came to me many years ago, about five or six years ago. They came to me because a trial court had granted their motion for extension of time to file a motion for new trial. But they didn't realize that that was one of the areas of law that at that time the trial court did not have the authority to grant. And so their time for filing notice of appeal expired because by the time they filed their motion for new trial, it has, it was no longer tolling rendition. So the judgment on the verdict became final and they missed their notice of appeal deadline. And ultimately their appeal was in fact dismissed by the appellate court. That that's a tough pill to swallow when you you think you're doing the right thing, the court has issued an order but but you can't rely on that order and then you find yourself out of time. That's that's um that's a tough spot. Definitely. Definitely. So as as I was talking about the concept of rendition the and the tolling motions and I was kind of dovetailing back to where we were descri- describing and I was I was answering that question of how do we know it's final? So is it in writing? Has it been signed? And has it been filed with the clerk? Once again, seems straightforward. Then we ask, are there any tolling motions? So if a tolling motion has been uh, timely filed, and it is in fact timely, then the rules is fairly straightforward that the final order is not rendered as to any of the existing parties until the filing with the clerk of a signed written order that disposes of the last of such motions. And again, that comes right out of rule 9.020. I'll tell you, Jack, that one of the things that also makes me nervous when someone comes to me and says, hey, we filed this, uh, this tolls rendition, right? This tolls time. And, uh, you know, it has to be timely and it has to be authorized. So it's, it's, it takes a little bit of uh, looking into before I'm ready to confirm that, yes, I think this is a that this is tolling time, right? Because like, we got to make sure that, that the 
motion was timely filed that was authorized under the rules in that particular circumstance. Um, so it's a loaded question, right? You have to make sure that it's both timely and authorized for it to be effective. Absolutely. Sure. And then, of course, we run into that uh, situation, which I'm sure you've seen, where somebody files a motion for rehearing directed toward a non-final order, believing that they are tolling rendition. And in fact, because it's not an authorized motion, because motions for rehearing are not authorized as to non-final orders, even if the trial court entertains it, it was not tolling rendition. I've seen that, and I'm sure you've seen this too, with discovery orders. You'll see a discovery order, which as a point of law in a, is never going to be deemed a final order. It might be reviewable by petition for certiorari, but more than once I've encountered the circumstance where somebody believes their deadline for seeking review of a discovery order has been told by virtue of the fact that they filed their motion for a hearing only to discover when we tell them that, by the way, your motion for rehearing did not toll rendition and your deadline for filing, not a notice of appeal, by the way, but a petition for the certiorari is due tomorrow. <laughs> not, you know, I've, I've had that no happen a few times. better tomorrow than two days ago. <laughs> thankfully, I know. I've, I've, uh, I was going to say, I have not yet, thankfully, had the experience where somebody has come to me too far after the point of no return. But I have had the unfortunate circumstance of scrambling to put a petition together at the very last minute because somebody thought that they had more time by virtue of a, of a motion that they believed was an authorized, timely motion that told rendition and did not understand that it did not, in fact, toll. And, and even using the concept of rendition, it, it does apply in the concept in the context of a non-final order because rent an order is rendered whether it's final or non-final, once it's a signed written order is filed with the clerk of the lower tribunal, but a motion tolling rendition has to be authorized and, and motion for hearing to a non-final order is technically not one that does toll rendition. And I think it's worth saying that because of the the way the rule is, is phrased with the rendition, when you get that order that disposes of your your timely and authorized post-trial motion, uh, it's not a, you know, we sometimes we, we use imprecise language, I think. It's not a tolling. It's not, you know, if just because you filed your post-trial motion 10 days after the judgment, when that is disposed of, you still have 30 days because the, the rendition model, it's almost like the final judgment wasn't entered, right? It wasn't rendered until that the day that, of that order disposing the motion. So you have 30 days. If you had 30 days to appeal, you still have 30 days from the entry of that order. That, that's right. That's right. Because the idea of tolling rendition, the way I, the way I look at it is you don't have an appealable order until you have an order that's been rendered. So I think of tolling rendition as basically suspending it in time. That that order is suspended in time to the extent that it is not rendered and realized as a final order until a signed written order has been entered that adjudicates the tolling motion. At that point, you have your rendered order and your 30-day window at that point starts to run for filing your notice of appeal, assuming that, as we mentioned, that you do have a final judgment. One thing that I have encountered that creates confusion, too, is the idea of a final judgment being entered right after the verdict is returned, but the notion that that final judgment is not rendered. 
And then I've been in the other, when you have a, a timely filed authorized motion for new trial after the verdict is returned. The other issue that I've encountered that creates confusion is the idea that some judges, in my experience, and some lawyers, they don't want that final judgment entered because even though it's not rendered, uh, they don't like the idea of the final judgment being out there, even if it's rendered, because it's it's there. It's not, you know, they, I think a lot of lawyers would feel better if they can if no judgment's entered until the court has adjudicated the post-trial motions. And I've seen courts handle that both ways. I've seen judges enter a final judgment right away, which, of course, anyone who is a plaintiff will want because they can have interest starting to accrue even if they can't execute on the judgment. And from the defense side, most of the defendants I know would rather not have that judgment entered because they don't want interest accruing while they're litigating the post-trial issues. I guess from a mental model perspective, I've always thought of it, which is what's kind of weird about the concept of rendering. I think the the whole paradigm is strange. So like when the court enters the, the final order, final judgment, it is rendered at that time, but then maybe you know, 12 or 13 days go by and someone files an authorized, timely post-trial motion, then it's like it's unrendered, right? Until it's closed up yeah, and then it's yeah. re-rendered. Uh, you know, so it's it's kind of, uh, it's a funny concept when you think about it in the abstract. It is, it is. And it's interesting the way you just framed that because, so I think, for example, if a court entered a summary final judgment on a motion and it was in fact a summary final judgment, that judgment would technically be rendered the moment that it was signed and filed with the clerk. But then again, an authorized motion for a hearing would unrender it and then toll rendition while the motion for a hearing was being evaluated until it was adjudicated. Then on the flip side, if there was a, a verdict returned by the jury in a jury trial, and a timely motion for new trial was filed within the 15 days after the return of the verdict, and a judgment was then entered, it would never be rendered until the disposition of the motion for new trial that had already been filed. So it can happen in both of those different ways, right? You can have a judgment that becomes unrendered by the timely filed motion for a hearing, or you can have a judgment that's never rendered until the disposition of a timely motion for new trial post-verdict. Yes. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now Add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out Episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious and the in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. Next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. 
And and the other thing that's interesting in this in in this kind of morass of, of finality, the idea that as you'll recall, the rule used to be that if you filed a notice of appeal while your motions for rehearing or new trial were pending, the notice of appeal would abandoned abandon those motions. And then about three or four years ago, I forget exactly when, probably longer at this point, they amended the rule 9.020 to be consistent with the federal rules of civil procedure so that now if there's a timely filed motion that's tolling rendition that's pending, the notice of appeal is held in abeyance until disposition of the filed motions that had rendered. So I, I find that interesting and I would be curious to hear what you think, but a lot of people ask me, if your notice of appeal is going to be held in abeyance, why not just file the notice of appeal every time? Why wait? Why wait? And I've been asked that question. Why are we going to wait to file our notice of appeal if it's going to be held in abeyance if we have these timely post-verdict or post-judgment authorized tolling motions? And my response to that is because it gives us another 30-day window for filing our notice of appeal should we need it as opposed to the notice of appeal becoming effective immediately upon rendition of our post uh, rendition by virtue of the ruling on our post trial motions. What do you think about that? You know, I think I like the change to the rule because sometimes you were put in an awkward position before where you had some pending um, motions and you, you, you felt like you needed to file a notice of appeal and you didn't want to abandon, but you didn't want to wait. And, you know, so there are, I, I like the change to the rule, but I, I agree with you that um, I, I see both sides. There's no harm in filing it early, but if you think you want that extra 30 days or so cushion, um, you know, I'm not going to be one who's going to forget <laughs> notice of appeal after the, after the orders are resolved. So, I, or the motions are resolved. So I, you know, yeah, I, I agree though. There's no harm in doing it early. Uh, unless you just want to you know, leverage that time period a little bit. Right. And I can imagine there might be instances where that extra time is necessary or desirable. But generally, I have sort of gotten into the habit of filing my notice of appeal a little bit earlier, just because I want to have it out there and ready to go as soon as the court addresses the post-judgment uh, or post-trial tolling motions. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, sometimes it's a uh, strategic uh, weapon too, just that you want, uh, I don't know that you necessarily want the court to know maybe, but you certainly want the opposing party to know that you've, you've teed this thing up for appeal and maybe that helps with some settlement negotiations post-judgment or whatever. Right. I was going to mention that one of the things that's uh, very important is to make sure to focus on substance over form. And this is one of the things when I was kind of thinking about what are the pitfalls? What are the dangers that we see when it comes to the concept of finality? One of the things that I have uh, told people to be careful of is to beware of labels and focus on substance over form. Because simply because an order does say with prejudice or without prejudice is not indicative of finality and is not indicative of a matter that's not final. There's a case it's a Boyd versus Goff. I cite to this case quite a bit when I deal with this kind of issue. And I don't know if you want the citation for that, but it's 828 Southern 2nd, 468. And it's in a fifth district where 
the court dismissed an appeal as untimely and specifically held that the case presented a good example of why it was important to understand what a court order does and not on how it is labeled. And the court noted that while the order was labeled as one that granted a summary judgment, it actually had language there that also included a final summary judgment was hereby entered. And the court concluded that while on its face at first glance, it appeared to be without prejudice, it in fact was a final judgment and the dis- the appeal was dismissed as a result. Hmm. Yeah, I have noticed like uh, people want to rely on the title of orders, right? Because it'll say final summary judgment or something, but it's not. Uh, obviously, final is a, if you're drafting the order and you want it to be final, uh, Putting final in the title is is advisable and a great idea, but like you're saying, it's it's not it's certainly not uh, conclusive of the issue by any means. Uh, it's almost uh, I don't want to say irrelevant, but uh, it's it's one of a couple factors. But re- what's really important is the language of the order itself. The title is uh, just extra, I guess. That's right. I, that's right, and it's and it it is beneficial, I think, to label it appropriately. And I think it is beneficial to call it final if it's final. And I think it's beneficial to make sure that if it's with prejudice, that it says with prejudice. But the most important thing from our perspective, when you are examining something and you need to know whether or not that notice of appeal is due, not to rely on the title, not to rely on the labels, but instead to look at the substance over form. Yeah. And and one of the places that I would add if I may, when it comes to those kinds of orders that can create confusion, are those orders that dispose of one of multiple claims when there are other claims pending, juxtaposed with an order that completely disposes of one party when there are several parties? So, for example, if there are four parties to a case and there's an order that grants a motion to dismiss, then if it's completely adjudicates the matter and disposes of the case as to a party, then it is immediately final and appealable as to that party. On the other hand, if it's an order that addresses only one of multiple claims that is pending in virtually every instance, then that is not going to be a final order. It might fall again, as we described under the non-final rulings, theoretically, it could be a non-final appealable order, but from a perspective of finality, the disposition of one of several claims is not going to be immediately reviewable as a final order, but a an order that completely disposes of a party will be. Yeah, this is another complicated issue uh, that I seem to face a lot. Uh, trying to get to the bottom of that, it's it is you know I I always pull the rule out <laughs> and I look at the rule and I you know it requires you to not only to look at the order but to look at the uh, pleadings in the case to see, you know, what uh, what claims have been brought and what claims are left. It's, it's a complicated issue, and it's another one of those things. It's a nerve wracking issue because, uh, you know, you don't want to get it wrong. I mean, the, the nice thing is, if if you don't appeal, uh, you can always appeal at the end. Uh, so you're not. It's not a trap, but still, you don't want to give your clients the wrong advice about what's appealable and what's not. Right. That's right. And and one thing I will point out, I, I certainly agree that if it's the disposition of one of several claims, that it is highly likely that it'll be reviewable at the end. 
But of course, if it does in fact completely adjudicate the matter as to one of several parties, then it must be appealed at that time because if it's final as to a party and completely disposes of the case as to one of several parties, then it must be appealed at that time. So yeah. that to me, that's, yeah, that's, that to me is the most, uh, when it comes to that issue, that's an area that I see as a pitfall because I have more than once had a situation where somebody came to me with a multi-party, multi-count cause of action, and they wanted to know, was this final? Do I have a final order? Look, the order says it's dismissed with prejudice as to party A, but the case continues as to party B. Do I have a final order? The answer is yes, you have a final order as to party A because it dismissed the case with prejudice as to party A and the case is over. The fact that it continues as to party B in state court, let me make sure I say that, in state, because we've been focusing more on state court, but I guess this is a good place to highlight the fact that that is one of the biggest distinctions between state and federal practice. In state court, the order that completely adjudicates a matter as to a party when there are multiple parties in the claim is final and must be immediately appealed. In federal court, if there are multiple parties, and the case is adjudicated in final format as in final form as to one of several parties you don't have a final appealable order until the court addresses and adjudicates the matter as to the remaining parties unless you get a certification under federal rule of civil procedure 54b which allows of course the judge to certify the case for immediate reviewability yes definitely and i guess uh and i'm 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 glad you made that that distinction. My, my point, I guess, on that, the nice thing about at least an order that ends the case as to a party, uh, which, you know, has to be immediately appealable. I, I feel like it's a trap only in the sense that lawyers who don't, aren't really well versed in appellate procedure might miss that as an appealable order. But for those of us, at least who are focused on it, it's pretty easy to tell, right, if an order is finalized to that party. So it's, I think for people who are at least tuned into the rule, that's not a judgment call usually. I mean, it's fairly clear whether the whether the case is ended to a, as to a party or not, or at least with the caveats we talked about before about what's a final order and that sort of thing. But I, that's not one of the things that, that uh, keeps me awake at night, making sure I'm <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I, I guess thing I get too many things keep me awake at night. So maybe that's my problem. I, 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 I'm kept awake at night by a lot of different uh, things that I'll read and I'll go back and I'll look at it in order. But here's, here's an interesting one. Um, and you're right, by the way, you're right. Someone who's in tune with this issue, this issue, somebody who does appellate practice on a regular basis is going to be aware of that. But what if, and I've seen this, what if there's an order that dismisses a case as to party A without prejudice, but leaves the case pending as to party B? Well, is it an immediately appealable order as to party A? Not necessarily, because if it really is without prejudice and leave to amend is granted, then the appellate court might find, well, that's not final and, and appealable because there's 10 days to file an amended pleading that, uh, and therefore, it wasn't really a final order from the perspective of of rendition and finality as to party A because the court granted leave to amend to uh, make the pleadings a little more clear. Mm-hmm. So there's another point where 
where new there's always a nuance even on those cases on those uh con- those points that appear to be well settled right so. <laughs> well that's how we make our living right <laughs> <laughs> definitely that's why we need a poet specialist i'd like to think so what I like to think by so. curiosity which do you which rule uh do you think is better do you like the florida formulation of the rule or the federal formulation I like the Florida formulation and I will tell you, and I have a specific reason for it. I, I think that when the, the problem I have with the federal rule is that it results in the case lingering and the inability to seek review as to those parties that have been fully adjudicated while the case continues pending. And the problem I have with that is, is that it could take another year, two, three years, who knows how long. And so You've got this order out there that one might want to seek review of, but you can't in the federal system because the case continues to be pending as to other parties. And I think that that, to me, creates a lot of circumstances for uh, either confusion and also uh, can be very detrimental. Uh, One example I could think of is if, let's say, plaintiff sues A, B, and C, get in federal court, a gets out on a on a summary judgment, but B and C, the case continues pending. Plaintiff cannot seek appeal as to party A of the summary judgment. And as a result, party A perhaps uh, changes course, goes bankrupt. Maybe the business disappears. A lot of different things might happen. And, and, and I could look at it from the flip side too. If, if I'm um, on if I'm defending a case, which quite honestly I typically am because 99% of my cases I'm on the defense side. But if I'm defending a case, um, I want I might want to have immediate reviewability of a matter as to a, a plaintiff who obtains a successful ruling, perhaps on a summary judgment, because I don't want the case lingering as to the remaining parties without the ability to have all the parties adjudicated at the same time. If I can't immediately seek review of that final ruling because the case continues pending, I think it's a disadvantage. I like being able to immediately review as in state court. Yeah, I agree with you for all the same reasons. I think that the Florida rule, uh, it's just, it's, it's more, it, it provides more efficiency, I think. Um, you know, otherwise things can linger for a long time, especially in federal court uh, cases can go on for years. And I, I'd rather see it teed up early uh, and the, get those things resolved. So I, I agree. I, I like the Florida. I like the Florida formulation better. Yeah. And the other the other I, I think that to me, that's pretty uh, I'm sure other people would have different opinions on that. But the other place where I think is a really confusing area, and this is really very similar to what we were just talking about is the concept of partial final judgments. And I alluded to that earlier, the idea that a, a partial final judgment that is reviewable, that either on appeal from the partial final judgment or on appeal from the final judgment, right? So the fi- the partial final judgment is something that I have found perplexing my whole career because I have n- the only place where I've ever seen true partial final judgments are like in the insurance context. Um, I don't think we typically see partial final judgments that are immediately reviewable because it has to be completely not, inter- I guess it has to be completely severable from the remaining parts of the claim. Perhaps 
like in a permissive counterclaim, right? Where if you have uh, a, a party who brings a lawsuit and there's a permissive counterclaim and there is a specific ruling that adjudicates the permissive counterclaim, but the claim, the main claim is still pending, then I guess one could say that the disposition of the partial of the of the permissive counterclaim is appealable perhaps as a partial final judgment but if it's a compulsory counterclaim as i recall from different case law the compulsory counterclaim is not a, a an order that adjudicates a compulsory counterclaim is not going to be immediately reviewable as either a full or partial judgment because of the interdependency of the main claim and the compulsory counterclaim so that's one of those instances that I think can create a lot of confusion, that distinction between compulsory and permissive counterclaims, and to the extent to which that is impacted by the rule that describes the review of partial final judgments. Because if you, I was looking at that rule and it says, a partial final judgment, other than one that disposes of an entire case as to any party, is one that disposes of a separate and distinct cause of action that is not interdependent with other pleaded claims. So the the odds of that happening, to me, I can only think in my mind of that is in a permissive counterclaim. When it's a, a, a person files a, a counterclaim that is completely permissive, so it's therefore not interdependent with other pleaded claims. I'm not sure if there's other examples that you've encountered on those partial final judgments that would give right to an immediate appeal. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I have had this battle a few times with people who are trying to make that distinction because they want to appeal early. And so they're trying to, but you know, it's a tough to, for the case to be, I think some of the case law uses factually and legally distinct from the balance of the case. Like you said, that the odds are <laughs> that just doesn't happen very often. Uh, and so I've gotten to these jurisdictional battles uh, sometimes uh, in the appellate courts. And I think generally, uh, have been resolved in favor of it, it not being uh, separate and distinct and, you know, a premature appeal. The By the way, in 9.110, I was just looking at the rule while we were talking, in 9.110K, the review of partial final judgments, what's interesting is the language in the center of the rule that says, if a partial final judgment totally disposes of an entire case as to any party, it must be appealed within 30 days of rendition. That language was recently, fairly recently added, as I recall, because of the the pitfall that you and I just discussed a few minutes ago. As I can't, rec- I'm, I'm, I would have to look at the amendments, but I recall when they added that language, if I if I'm remembering correctly, was fairly recently, like within the last five to six years, specifically to make sure that people understood that a partial final judgment that completely disposes of a case in its entirety as to a party must be appealed immediately. So, yeah, because isn't that part of addressing what we used to call the, the Mendez trap where, where people were put in a position where they had to just make this decision, whether it was a partial final judgment because they needed to appeal it if it was. And I think now the, the Mendez trap has been eliminated by virtue of the fact that you can still bring that appeal later. You're, you're not put in a box where you have to choose correctly as to whether that's a partial final judgment or not. Right. I, I, I understand what you're referring to, and I agree. It's one of those, uh, you know, 
weird Florida lore, Florida appellate lore things. Uh, you know, Tipsy Coachman and Mendez traps and <laughs> all that yeah. stuff that you'll hear about in uh, board certification review courses. <laughs> right. Well, Jack, I think that's a that's a pretty good analysis of of finality. I mean, it's something that sounds like such an easy topic, and there's just there's so many aspects to it that have to be considered it's um it would it would make a good flow chart right <laughs> definitely definitely <laughs> definitely if there was some formula that we can apply across the board i definitely would like to know it but uh, until then we'll just have to keep on analyzing these things <laughs> on a case-by-case basis <laughs> oh that's right and that's what keeps us having work to do right that's true. That's true. If everybody, if if it was inherently obvious, you you wouldn't need uh, appellate lawyers to uh, tell you what to do. Right, and I would get more sleep going back to what you said. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> anyway. For being on the podcast, I really appreciate your time and and thanks for uh, being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thanks to Jack Ryder for being on the podcast. His biography and contact information are in the show notes. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. Please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is always in the show notes and on our website. Please take a moment. Add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. This marks the start of another 10-episode season, and shows will publish fortnightly or, you know, every other week, on Sunday nights about 8 p.m. I hope you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.